Galley from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child and why they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room, no place for them in the inn. All right. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. All right. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is, is pleased. Thank you, Sarah. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Thank you. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, where you're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, as you have probably already recognized, and we will cover these verses they have read for us. As you uh, turn, I want to welcome you here this morning. I'm glad that you've come to celebrate the birth of our Savior, particularly if you're a visitor. Welcome to Crosspoint, and I hope you'll be with us with us again. I do want to mention something. If you weren't with us last Sunday, this will not you won't be aware of this, but we mentioned in our community time last Sunday a little girl named Bella Bowman, and uh, she to pray for her, this little girl is eight years old, second grade at Dunham School here in Baton Rouge, and she passed away this week. And um, from what we can see, the, the family is doing well, but this is just a matter of prayer and something to keep in mind as we celebrate, joyfully celebrate the birth of our Savior, to also keep in mind these who are, who are hurting this morning. So I ask you just to bow your head and pray with me for a moment as we get started. God, we thank you that you are one who reigns in grace and in kindness. 
Lord, that you come to the lowly, Father, to the sinful, and you bestow grace and forgiveness. We thank you so much, Lord, for what we celebrate this morning. We thank you for the way in which the story comes to us, a baby in a manger, a feed trough. Lord, we praise you for you are a great God. Lord, we pray for the Bowman family and we pray for great comfort to them that they might think on your son Jesus this morning and that it might bring that it might bring joy in the midst of heartache and difficulty. Lord, I pray for us this morning that that we would recognize this is a story that comes to us and meets us in whatever circumstance we're in, that, Lord, you have taken on flesh and that you are our Savior. We praise you this morning, Father. We pray that you would bless the teaching of your word, that your spirit would open our hearts, that we might gaze into your beauty, that we might behold you, Father, and we might worship you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. There are two main points that I want us to look at this morning. Those two points are the birth of Jesus was historical and the birth of the identity, excuse me, the identity of Jesus is revelational. I did look up that word and that word is appropriate. I had questions at first, but the birth of Jesus was historical and the identity of Jesus is revelational. We're first going to look at these beginning verses of chapter 2. We looked into these last night, and we're just going to get a little bit deeper into the similar subject of just the reality of what's happening here. Luke tells a a very simple story, a very simple narrative, but in doing so, it's, it's very important. Let's first, as we look at these verses, let's think about Luke's overall purpose in writing his gospel, his book. Let's look, if you'll turn over one page with me, to chapter 1. In the first four verses of the book of Luke, we'll read these verses together. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You see, Luke's overall purpose in writing this gospel, this message of Jesus, is to show that these events really happened. They really transpired. And so as Luke comes to this issue, he is going to research it closely. You see, the early believers were not trying to convince people of this message of Jesus by some sleight of hand or by twisting or even exaggerating the evidence. Nor did they even try to convince them based on their spiritual experience. That wasn't the only important thing. Luke, along with the other writers of the New Testament, was very intentional to say that these were eyewitnessed events. And in the case of Luke, who didn't, wasn't able to see them with his own eyes, he says that I followed them closely. Luke researched. He sought them out. Listen to this verse from 2 Peter as another example of how the New Testament writers approach this. 2 Peter 1.16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
You see, the New Testament writers, it was very important to them to the, that they say, this really happened. We saw it with our own eyes. If you look at the first verses of First John, John's going to say, we beheld him and we even touched him with our own hands. We saw this happen. We should also recognize Luke's reliability. He's not a, a guy that would just, was just gullible, who would just believe whatever anyone said. But... He looked closely. As a historian, Luke, he, he used to be highly criticized because of his use of a technical term for authorities in the book of Acts. In case you don't know, Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And it was a term for authorities in the area of Macedonia. This verse is in Acts seventeen six, And Luke calls the authorities this word polytarches. If you were in Sunday school last week, you would, might have heard this. But the word simply means city rulers. It was a local word. And kind of like it was thinking this morning, some people in the south will use the term making groceries. And everybody's like, how do you make groceries? But it means going to the grocery store. Well, you see, the thing is, Luke was using this term, and no one knew what it was. They thought that Luke may not be reliable because he's using this term that archaeologists had never seen. But just several years ago, a dig in Macedonia recovered an inscription that referred to the local authorities as polytarches. You see, Luke was using a very particular, intentional term that referred to locals authority, uh, local authorities within the area of Macedonia. And as archaeologists realized this, the credibility of Luke was even furthered. We recognize that Luke was very intentional in seeking these things out. He was careful. So as we approach the Gospel of Luke, we need to know that Luke is trying to show us historical fact. Not just myth, not just spiritual experiences, but he's trying to show us historical reliability, things that actually happened. And so an application point here from the beginning. Christianity is not a drop your faith, drop your mind at the door kind of faith. It wasn't for the writers of the New Testament, nor should it be for us. Christians, we should be paving the way for research into different fields because everywhere we go, we claim all truth is God's truth. Augustine, he referred to his Christian journey as faith-seeking understanding. And of course, we'll all have different levels of knowledge and ability in different areas of the Christian life. But the point is, we shouldn't be intellectual slackers. These writers charge us as believers to be earnest in seeking clarity in the Christian faith and seeking reliability that this is not just spiritual truth, but it is truth in every sense. We know Jesus is Lord not just because we've experienced Him in our hearts. We know Jesus is Lord because He has come to us. And he has showed us, we read the New Testament, and we see that he did incredible things. He rose from the dead, and there are eyewitnesses of this. And so, we as believers need to recognize that what we experience in our hearts as Christ, and as Christ Jesus as Savior, is also, it's a physical reality. Christ has come to us. Now, let's go back to Luke chapter 2, and we'll see the ways in which Luke is going to make this clear and application to Jesus and the birth of Jesus. First, he mentions people and places. In those first verses that the children read, or that Anna read for us, it says, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus ruled from 27 BC to AD 14. 
He was associated with Mark Antony and other people that you've heard of in history. We know this. We can look to documents and see that this Octavian Caesar Augustus ruled during this period. Luke, in this situation, is giving us a timetable for the birth of Jesus. He also uses this man, Quirinius. It says that this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius, we know from historical documents, was a governor from 6 to 9 A.D. Now, we should mention here that there is difficulty in finding this particular census. We know that Quirinius was governor from 6 to 9 A.D., but we also know that Herod was alive during the birth of Jesus. And if you were here several weeks ago when Brother Tommy Middleton preached, we discussed this, that Jesus was actually born in 4 B.C., And so, Jesus being born in 4 B.C. and then using this term, Quirinius, governor of Syria, which was actually in 6 to 9 B.C. from the records that we have, we're not exactly sure about this census. We have not seen this exact census. But just in the case when I I mentioned the Polytarches, you see, that didn't come until recently. There's evidence that we're still searching for. And so while some would try to completely deny everything that's happened because we don't have one bit of research, the wiser way to approach these things is to say that the, or the evidence comes as we continue to go along. Luke has been reliable in other areas. Why would we not trust him in areas that we don't have evidence for yet? And so... First of all, Luke uses these people and places, Octavian, Quirinius, and he gives us timetables with these. He also uses the place, Bethlehem, the city of David. And what we see in Luke's mention of Bethlehem, city of David, is that God is fulfilling his promises within our historical reality. In verse 4, he says, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. If you've been with us for the last several months that we've been walking through the minor prophets, you might have heard us point to this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This prediction was made long before Luke writes But in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 it says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. The beautiful thing about what's happening here is Luke is talking about the things that are going on within history. There's this ruler who would eventually be equated with God, this Caesar Augustus. Yet this Caesar Augustus issues a decree that the whole world should be taken a census. And in this decree that the whole world should, there should be a census, the king of all the earth, God himself sends his son and fulfills the promise that that son is to be born in Bethlehem through the decree of the one who would try to equate himself with God. You see, Caesar is basically a puppet on a string here. (laughs) It is God who is over all world history and it is God who is working within world history to accomplish all his purposes. Luke is connecting these dots. Luke is putting these things together and saying that God is working within history to fulfill all his promises and 
to accomplish his purposes. So Luke uses these people and places. He gives us times, he gives us dates, but he also does it to show that God is working within history. And as we talked about last night, as we get to the particular story of Mary and Joseph, Luke gives us this short, simple story about the birth of Jesus and the circumstances that surround it to say that God works within normal, even chaotic history. As we talked about last night, this story, this story the, the journey that they were to take to Bethlehem, it was not convenient. Mary was very, very pregnant, and she rides on a donkey for 90 miles to Bethlehem. This is not a journey that would be enjoyable to take. And then when she gets there, the inn is full. And so she takes her firstborn son to be born in this stable and to be set in a feed trough. And what this story teaches us is that God works in us. He works within just normal life. How many of you had unexpected things happen this morning as you were trying to get your kids ready? How many of you got, have gotten less sleep this last week than you would have liked to? What God is saying is, I work within all of this. Even in the midst of these unexpected circumstances, God brings about the greatest promise ever that he would save humanity through his own son. And so, God is working in the large scale of world history and even on the small scale to fulfill all his promises. The next thing that we should look at within this world history aspect that Luke is drawing for us is the incarnation. You see, the incarnation is that in time, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, took on humanity. That he was born as a baby. And I want to read to you a couple of quotes here to reinforce the importance of this and comment for a moment. Christianity stands or falls with the fact that here in our actual history and existence is the Savior God. The historical element is absolutely essential, for apart from it, the whole mystery of Christ is dissolved into thin air, and the incarnation means nothing at all. You see, the historical reality means that our faith is not left up to a subjective experience. A lot of people have experiences, and some of those people we call crazy, lunatics. But we know He is God, not just because we have experienced Him, because He has come to us. Because we read of Him. Because He lived, He died, and He rose from the dead. And we hear of this. We hear of this from reliable sources. We look into history and we find the research. We see this. And we know and we are reassured that he has God. That he has shown himself. Also, the incarnation tells us plainly that all our efforts to go from humanity to God are useless and false. All our efforts to join man to God are judged and disqualified. You see, the the incarnation shows that God's salvation is only by grace. You cannot bring God to yourself. You could not make God come down from heaven and become a man. But God says, I will go down. I will go to them. I will show myself to them. I will live a perfect life and I will die. And I will rise and even in my death, I will bring life to all who will trust in me. The incarnation 
the historical reality of God coming to us in Jesus Christ shows that salvation is only by grace. You can do nothing of yourself that would bring God to you. It is His love and kindness that would bring you life if you would believe in Him. But none of this, none of this historical reality and this this that Luke has drawn for us, that Jesus came to us in real life, in real time, none of this can be understood apart from the revelation of His identity. You see, what Luke has done for us so far is he's placed Jesus within time, within history, He's told us this normal, very normal story about his birth. But in the next verses concerning the the shepherds and the angels, concerning Simeon and Anna, what we see is that the identity of Jesus can only be known by revelation, by heaven showing us who Jesus is. So let's look at these verses together. We're going to look at the shepherds first. Let's read again, just to be reminded, verses 8 through 14 of chapter 2. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying to God in the high, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As we look at this section, the introductory verses of the shepherds being in the field and this angel coming to them and them being, being struck in fear. It reminds us that God desires to interact with his creation, but his presence alone strikes fear and reverence. The shepherds have to be calmed by the angels. They give them a word of assurance, and then they say the message they're coming with is one of good news. That word good news is the word for gospel that we often talk about. It's of great joy, and it's delivered to them, but it extends to all people. You see, shepherds are commoners. They weren't priests. They were nothing extremely important in society. And so this message comes to shepherds, the most common of all people, and it says this message is for all people. They are representatives of everyone. So the shepherds are delivered this message from the angels that this one who has been born is to be a savior And he is Christ the Lord. This is verse 11. And I just want to mention a few things about these titles. These are very important titles that the angels give concerning Jesus. They say he is Savior and he is Christ the Lord. Just a bit about these titles. Savior. Savior reflects the character of God. God has always been the Savior of his people. When they were in different circumstances, in slavery, in Egypt... Or in any situation at the Red Sea, that he has been their savior. Isaiah 25, 9 describes it this way. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This baby to come that has come is to act in the character and work of God. He is to be their savior. 
but also he is Christ. He's a Messiah. Christ means anointed one. It's the word for Messiah. And it means a kingly figure who would come in the line of David. Notice in just these several verses that we've read this morning, twice Luke has mentioned that Jesus is coming through the line of David. This is because Jesus is to be one who reigns as king. He is to be their Messiah. He is also Lord. He's also Lord. At this point, what Luke is doing is foreshadowing a bit of who Jesus is to become. The only association we have with of the word Lord thus far is from several other verses in Luke. Luke 1.16, for instance, it is says, The Lord their God. In this case, it's equated not with Jesus, but with Yahweh, the God of Israel. And in Luke 1.68, he is the Lord God of Israel. What it means is that he's sovereign over all creation. And so... Luke is delivering this message from the angels, recording this message from the angels, and it is said that this Jesus will be Lord. Now, to you, this may not have much significance, but the incredible thing is that Jews were strictly monotheistic. They believed solely in Yahweh as the God over all things. So as this person comes, this baby, and is called Lord, their monotheism is threatened. Who is this? Another one that shall be called Lord? This can only be the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. But He also is to be sovereign over creation. So this one who comes, He he is Savior, He is Messiah, and He is Lord. But this message, notice the important aspect here, that the shepherds only receive this message because heaven delivers it to them. The angels come to them and show them who this Christ is. Now look at the heavenly response. Verse 13. This is an odd verse. It says, Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly the heavens open and the shepherds see this great scene of angels praising God. It's a revelation that reinforces to the shepherds the significance of Jesus' birth. Heaven above is praising that Jesus has come to earth, that Jesus has been born. This section here, just for clarity, that says that there will be peace among those with whom God is pleased. This is basically a Jewish way of saying there will be peace with those whom God has shown favor. It is not a way of saying God looks on those who are doing really good things and those he chooses to have favor with. It's peace among those whom God has chosen and he has shown favor to. They will have peace. But the beautiful thing about this revelation that we see is that while it is a work of God, the shepherds only know who Jesus is because the angel comes to them and tells them, But while it's a work of God, God uses humans as instruments. Notice what happens next in this next section. Verses 15 through 21. And here we're getting to important practical application regarding this story. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What the shepherds do is they provide us an evangelistic model. Look at what's happened. God's word has come to the shepherds. They have received the message. They received the vision of who Jesus is. And when they go and they find it, they've received it by faith. And then they go and they spread this message. They go about praising God. God's word comes, by faith is received, it's obeyed by the shepherds, they go find him, and then by testimony, they spread it. Luke is providing for us a model of what all witnessing should be like. All of us, as we hear the message from God, look, the same way that the shepherds knew that Jesus, who Jesus was, friends, this is what must happen to us if we're to know who Jesus is. We may not see an angel, but your heart must be open to the gospel message that Jesus is not just a man, but he is God himself in the flesh. If you're to accept Christ, you must receive the opening of your heart. God must work in your heart and you must trust Christ. But the response to that is to go, to testify. And that's what this morning is about. We come together to worship Christ Because he has come to us. He has come to us as a baby, but he grew up and he died for us. But when we go from here this morning, and we may spend time with our families, we may celebrate today just as individual, intimate families, but the challenge to all of us is that we be like the shepherds. That we go and testify. Has the Lord opened your heart to salvation? Go, share. This is who Christ is. He is God and He has come for the forgiveness of your sins that you might know God. If the Lord has not opened your heart, then you're hearing the message this morning. If you have not received it, this is the message that God has come for your salvation, that you may no longer have any guilt in you, that your sins may all be forgiven, and you may know the Father of all creation, the one who is God. Let's look at two other examples, and we'll be finished this morning. Remember, the point we're making here is that the identity of the baby is only known by revelation. Simeon. As we look at chapter 2, verses 25 through 35. The parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, taken him to Jerusalem. And beginning in verse 25, it says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. It just means the salvation of Israel, for God to come to them and save them. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. 
And the father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon. He's long waited for God to fulfill his promises. And it is by the Holy Spirit that when Jesus comes into the temple, Simeon knows who this child is to be. But the incredible thing about what's revealed to Simeon is that only through the Spirit, only through the Spirit is Simeon able to see that that even good comes from the sufferings that will come in Christ. Listen to these final verses regarding this vision of Simeon. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. In other words, what Jesus does in some ways is going to hurt Mary, be hurtful to his mother because his ministry will be divisive. But he says that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. You see, through the Holy Spirit, Simeon Simeon sees who Jesus is. And he also sees that this ministry of Jesus will be divisive. But this ministry and Christ's mission will be for good. So that the hearts of all people will be revealed. And those who trust in him will be saved. I wonder if the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you this morning. And if he has, are you spreading that message? That he is the Savior. If he hasn't, if you have not accepted Christ, why not? Why are you putting it off? Why do you wait to the day that you will stand before God and he will judge you by your own works and by your own sin? Friend, he will forgive you. And he will judge you by his righteousness, not your own. And he will love you. I hope that you will receive Christ. This one more, one more example, Anna. There was a prophetess in verse 36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, like the shepherds, she spreads the message of Christ's presence. As soon as he arrives, by the Holy Spirit, by her intense prayer and the ways that she's pursued God, she knows that God has come, that God has come for their salvation. Simeon and Anna are serving examples in this story. An elderly man and woman who patiently trust and pray as they wait on the fulfillment of God's promises. As God fulfills them, they spread the word. Notice that Simeon, as soon as he says Jesus has come, he's like, Lord, you can take me. I'm ready now. He's, he's an elderly man and he knew that he wouldn't die until God brought his promise. But when God brings it, Simeon says, it's time for me to go. Do you feel like that you have no ability to be fruitful? You're in some situation in which you just can't do anything for God? Simeon is an example. Anna, she lost her husband just several years into the marriage, but from then on was in the temple fasting and praying. These two serve as examples and challenges to us. You are to be useful for God. Pray, seek Him, wait on His promises, and God uses these examples of faith 
They're in the story of our Savior's birth. Friend, the message to you this morning is to trust that God has come. In history, in your real, in life, in real existence, you are to experience the salvation of our Lord. It isn't something just to be experienced here in church or in some spiritual thing while you're in prayer. But as you walk about in your daily life, trust that God is with you and that He has saved you. He is to be experienced in every aspect of life, even in the chaos when you have less sleep than you would like. In sickness, whatever it may be, God is with us. But for those who have not believed, this is the message, and I pray that the Holy Spirit would open your heart this morning. If He's opening your heart, if you're hearing the message, Christ is Lord and I must follow Him, will you respond? The only other end is that you will stand before God, you yourself, and you will be judged for all that you've done. And friend, just as we said with the incarnation, you can't work yourself to God. He has come to you, and the only thing you can do is bow down and say, you are Lord, and I am not. Will you respond? And to the believers in the room, again, the shepherds, Anna, they all serve as examples. We go from here and we testify. We say Christ has come. He has come to bring us salvation. Won't you share this message with all? This is a message for all people. All people. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your kindness and your great love. Lord, you have appointed us as your messengers to proclaim your message of salvation to all people. And so we pray that we would be faithful and that we would go and that we would be intentional with our neighbors, with family members who may not know you, with people we run into. Lord, may we be bold witnesses of the salvation that you have given. And Lord, we also recognize that we can't know Jesus unless the light shines and signs 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 and